Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Why is this important? Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop of our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how we can work together to design a better world. For this reason, I've invited leading creative professionals in a variety of fields to share their work and their thoughts on the city with you. And through these conversations, I hope to engage some of the greatest challenges and opportunities facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, the role of architecture and the arts in building community, and so much more. Today, I am delighted to introduce my next guest. Alejandro Portes is a leading Cuban-American sociologist who has led a distinguished career in academia, serving as the Howard Harrison and Gabriel Snyder Beck Professor of Sociology at Princeton University, the John Dewey Chair in Arts and Sciences at John Hopkins University, and most recently, he serves as the Emilio Bacardi Distinguished Professor at the University of Miami. His research focuses on immigration, urbanization, and the numerous factors affecting the fates of immigrants and their children. He has published extensively with over 30 books and issues, which include City on the Edge, The Transformation of Miami with Alex Stepik, Immigrant America, A Portrait, The Global Edge, Miami in the 21st Century, co-authored with Ariel Armini, and most recently, Emerging Global Cities, Origin, Structure, and Significance, also co-authored with Ariel Armini. Alejandro is a fellow of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. In 2019, he was awarded the Princess of Asturias Award, which is the highest form of recognition bestowed by the Spanish crown and one of the most important prizes conferred in the European Union. Welcome, Alejandro, and thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. So maybe we're going to start at the beginning. You were born and you spent most of your formative years in Cuba. Can you tell us how that early childhood experience shaped your ideas about cities? Um, well, it's true. I, I spent my childhood and early adolescence uh, in Havana and never left the city. So I pretty much was like a fish in the water that doesn't know the, not, notice the water because you are always in it. And to me, that is being a, a, a Havana uh, young man, a child, and young man was taken for granted. I uh, seldom went to the countryside except for weekend excursions, and didn't know that that time reflect on uh, 
on what cities were like because he was living in one of them. But nevertheless, uh, having the experience of a of a vibrant and relatively sizable city around me was a was a very important background as I started to take itself, take the, the issue of urbanization and development seriously in my career as a researcher and sociologist. What I mean, if you if you could paint a picture, I mean, briefly for our listeners, um, what what was it like? to walk the streets of Havana as a child? Well, this, uh, it, it was uh, a, a relatively normal, despite the fact that this work, in, that is a, it was in the years of the dictatorship of, uh, of uh, Fulgencio Batista that was deposed. And therefore, there was always a danger, danger of violence in the streets because there was a, stru- that is, there was a, a struggle going on between uh, between the government and the uh, and the rebels that eventually prevail under Fidel Castro, so and the streets were not entirely safe at the time. But one has to do what one has to do, and uh, I simply went from home to to school at the Instituto de la Vibora, uh, which is uh, quite famous now because another uh, well-known. Cuban author Leonardo Padura also that is has written about the Instituto de la Vibora and also attended that institution. So we have that we have that in common. And it was back and forth. I did not have the means to be exploring uh, the nightlife. I was too young for that. And basically, it was uh, a city that that was both uh, very vibrant, somewhat dangerous. And pretty polluted in terms of air pollution. That is, the the the, the buses were awful in terms of letting go of scape, and uh, that it's uh, it was. Uh, I mean, nobody paid any attention to that. The, the concept of air pollution did not exist at the time, in the fifties, at least in the in the cities. But it it left uh, an image, and of course, the fact that it was a city by the sea, and it had a that amazing. Uh, uh, the, the avenue by the sea, that, that amazing boulevard that we call the Malecon, is certainly an unforgettable uh, image. One is that many, many people in the 50s in Havana went, went there in the hot summers of the island um, because usually the, the weather calmed down because of the presence of the, of the winds from the, from the Strait of Florida. So obviously the Malecon is very closely associated with the with, with the image of Havana, it's presented, uh, it's presented everywhere. And uh, I had occasion to come later on in life and uh, see, see the, that is the neighborhood where I used to live and see the heavy deterioration that the city had suffered uh, under the present regime with the exception of, a, of, uh, of certain, uh, certain areas around all Havana that were taken by the the historian of the city and give, given to him and reconstructed, largely for the benefit of tourists rather than citizens, but that gave a, a beautiful image of what uh, old Havana was like. Yeah, your you know your inter your education was interrupted uh, by the rise uh, of the Castro regime, um, as it was for many of your generation. Um, I I was curious if the displacement from the island 
um, may have impacted your decision to become a sociologist that later focused on the topic of immigration? Oh, absolutely. That is a, a but usually it's, it is uh, natural that <clears throat> that social scientists uh, uh, become interested in things that were that had a direct uh, impact or relation to to their own biography. And uh, I must say that the training that I received in in uh, in Havana, first from the uh, uh, from the Maristas brothers, and then at the public high school was excellent. That is the education, the education dispensed in those public centers, uh, even in the middle of the Batista uh, dictatorship was of high quality and enabled, that actually enabled me to easily pass the, the examinations, the high school graduate uh, in record time from, um, from high school and uh, when arriving in Miami and then continue with my university studies first in Argentina and then back um, then back in the United States. But uh, definitely when uh, that is uh, one when the the fact of having uh, having become an exile so young in life and uh, <clears throat> having seen what had at Miami uh, received uh, tens of thousands of uh, of uh, fellow Cubans in the 60s and 70s was uh, was something that I that I could not uh, that that had a heavy impact on my choice of topics so actually the first uh, as a graduate student uh, is completing my PhD at the University of Wisconsin Madison I have uh, prevailed some of my professors to fund study uh, of of uh, Cuban families that had that had been resettled in in the in Wisconsin, in Madison and Milwaukee, and actually I interviewed uh, dozens of them uh, at that time about their experiences. This was uh, this was the mid '60s, so it was a relatively recent uh, arrival. And out of that, uh, that is uh, the that 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 first study. Uh, completed before graduating was published as an article that uh, that 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 had some repercussion later years called dilemmas of a golden exile in which basically pointed out pointed out the the problems of the fact that the Cubans had been very favorably received by the by the American government and having given a great a, a great deal of assistance so the question is to what extent they've uh, a, were were willing to give up their culture or their and their language in order to um, to integrate themselves fully into American society or to what extent they resisted that and tried to in a sense combine both of them. But obviously, I, the idea that it was a golden exile means that the mode of incorporation, the mode, what the concept that that I developed later on, the mode of incorporation. Of Cubans in the United States, for the most part, was highly favorable. They were received as escapees from a communist regime. Most of them at that time were part of the old Cuban upper and middle classes, and uh, they did not—they uh, did not confront any discrimination. And as on the contrary, were given uh, considerable assistance. And by even by that time, when I interviewed them in Wisconsin. Many of them were had become executives of American corporations, 
were founding their own businesses and doing doing quite well economically and socially. So this was just the very beginning of, of the studies. Uh, after after graduation, I taught for four years at the University of Texas uh, and Austin, and there is where I launched probably my first large-scale study um, of large samples of Cuban uh, Cubans arriving in Miami at the time. This, now we are talking about the early 70s in the in the so-called freedom flights that used to come from every day from from Havana to Miami at the initiative of the American government, bringing in a, a, what remain of the Cuban middle class and Mexicans arriving at entry points in the Mexican border, primarily the cities of Laredo and El Paso. So I that is interviewed a large large sample of Mexicans and Cubans and follow them over time, interviewing them three years later and then six years later. The last the last interview took place about 19, 19, 1976. And that that is those that body of data uh became the 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 source of my next one of my major books at that time was called Latin Journey. Cuban and Mexican immigrants in the United States. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, I I was uh, just thinking in listening to you um, speak because in in essence you were you were looking at the Cubans, let's say in Miami, from a distance from Wisconsin, um, but of course the Cuban migration was not solely um, based or uh, in Miami. Uh, in fact, Cubans uh, arrived to all parts of the country, uh, yeah. but certainly the quantity that immigrated to Miami would be inextricably linked to the evolution of the city. And in a way, we we obviously share that history. Myself being a first generation American. Uh, from Cuban parents, uh, one of which actually fled the island, um, had to escape. So it's a very personal, you know, the story that you describe is a very personal one. Um, maybe actually before we kind of delve into some of the kind of ethnic focus of your recent book as it relates to these emerging global cities, I just wanted to say that we had the pleasure of meeting, um, I think for the first time when you were chairing an advisory board for the University of Miami Institute for Advanced Studies of the Americas that's directed by Felicia Knoll. Um, and it was really a, a chance encounter, which um, I, I believe that I was very fortunate to have. And um, as I started to delve into your book, really uh, as a professor in the School of Architecture, um, I became interested in the way that you described uh, our own city, the city of Miami, through several of your books. Um, and then this latest one, which I wanted to talk to you about in greater detail, um, is particularly interesting because it's a comparative study. Um, and in your book, Emerging Global Cities, you talked about the fact that you this idea for this new book um, seems to have emerged from a visit that you made to Dubai um, I believe. I wonder. I wonder if you could say something about that before we actually delve into the case studies of the book. Yes, I was uh, teaching uh, a, a for a course at the New York University campus at, in Abu Dhabi. Um, for I actually did that for several years in, in the fall. And Abu Dhabi is not is only seventy miles away from from Miami. So, it's an hour away, and uh, if I mean from Dubai, 
Abu Dhabi is an hour away from Dubai, of course. And so I visit Dubai rather often. I was impressed superficially by the similarity of the of the skyline with that of Miami. That is, it took very, very tall buildings, one after another, after another. Uh, it, it sort of in the, at night, it was a very impressive uh, uh, view. And uh, it led me to wonder uh, if there were any similarities between uh, Dubai and Miami, in other other than the than their their impressive skylines, and that and that le led me to also dig some more. I had uh, in 2015 visited Singapore at the at the invitation of the of the university and gave a series of lectures, and was also very impressed by the similarity of Singapore and Miami. People who go to Singapore is just like Miami. So then we had a, an a universe of three cities that were superficially, visually uh, comparable. And uh, of course, as a sociologist, social scientists led me to dig into uh, deeper into if these similarities was sim was were any more than than uh, than superficial uh, night views. And it turned out that they were not. Actually, that the, the cities were are profoundly similar in the in the role that they play in their respective regions of the world, in the, and in their economic, in the pillars the pillars of their economy, and the way that they have evolved, uh, they have evolved and and, and sort of earned a, a prominent place in the in the in the co in the global system in the, in the capitalist world system in general. But as uh, centers for finance, commerce, uh, tourism, and real estate investment in their respective regions of the world, so that's that. That was the idea that led led uh, led my co-author and I to explore the issue of how how similar these cities were and uh, if there were others in the world that played uh, a similar role to the ones that we define as emerging global cities. And it turned out that there weren't. There weren't. Uh, it's a very difficult, it's very difficult. That is, most many urban communities, many cities aspire to be very prominent, prominent in the world and to play a, a, a significant role, but for what reason or other, it doing so, that is, it becoming acquiring the the status that these cities have gained in their respective uh, global regions of the world, is difficult to achieve. And in that sense, the, the story of the book is what were the the historical conditions that led to to this development. What were the similarities between the the three places, and how were they different from others that also aspire to a similar uh, prominence, but for one reason or another, we're not able to 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 achieve that role. So let's get into that a little bit more. Actually, um, you 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 couple or a couple you put together these three cities. So what were the historical conditions that you feel facilitated the emergence of Miami, Singapore, and Dubai? Perhaps you can take them separately. Well, they they are they, their histories are enormously different, and yet they converge on a similar economic and social profile today. 
Perhaps I, be, I will start answering your question by the latter, the similarities, in, and then go back to the histories. This, the three cities have become uh, first financial, first financial uh, centers in their respective world. Miami is the financial center of the hem of Latin America, of the hemisphere. The accumulate that is in the the finance center in Miami grew from practically nothing at the time that I arrived in this city, at least in the 1960s, to become the second largest concentration of banking and finance in the East Coast next to Wall Street. It's called Brickell Avenue. The Brickell features dozens of banks, both American and foreigners, doing businesses, not in Florida exclusively, but throughout the world and primarily primarily in its region. So the, the fact that uh, that Miami, that is the Brickell, through the Brickell Center represents the, 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 the catapulting of Miami into the position of center for financial transactions and so on for the region. Just like New York is the center for global transactions, Miami plays that specialized role for its immediate um, periphery. Second, uh, larger scale commerce, that is large scale, both all three cities have a major port that, in, that imports and exports to its region massively, and also a, a, the most significant airport uh, in the region in terms of communicating, uh, which in, here in Miami is called Miami International, in uh, du Dubai International, in, and the, the Al Maktoum International in Dubai, and the, and the Singapore uh, International Airport located in Shanghai, in, in the area of Shanghai in Singapore. Though all three are, 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 are centers for their respective regions. That is, all airlines uh, all have been convinced that these are the places to park their hubs for, for the regions. Miami for Latin America, Singapore for, for East Asia, Dubai for the Middle East. Uh, airports, that is, commerce and, and transportation. And perhaps the last pillar, the third pillar of this of this economy, that have is uh, well actually therefore is real estate and construction. That that is the growth of these gigantic uh, condominium towers that we see and that populate the skyline of Miami, of Dubai, and so on. Are not are there for a reason? The buyers of these buildings are not. People are not necessarily the people who live in the city or the lo locals. The, the buyers are international. That is, they tend to invest in those cities because that is for a number of reasons and purchase both houses and condominium. That's what drives the, the real estate market in Dubai. It's not the Emiratis. The Emiratis are a very small part of the population of the UAE. Is, uh, in, that is well healed. Indians, Chinese, Pakistanis, and people in the immediate periphery that go to invest uh, uh, their, their, their money in Singapore. They both invested in, 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 in physical property like real estate and also uh, deposited in the banks. In Miami, it's the same story. Well-to-do Brazilians, Argentines, Chileans, and so on. Everyone in Latin America, middle and upper classes, want to have some place in Miami. It's almost that is it's it's taken that, that all the Colombian, all the middle and upper classes throughout the the region who want to have a place here, and also to invest 
a good part of their money he, uh, that is in the banking system because it is safe. It is predictable. It's completely safe. It's, it's free from the from the ups and downs, the political upheavals in the respective countries. And the same thing is, is true for Singapore. So here we have um, uh, here we have three pillars: uh, finance, fi banking, and finance. Uh, a large-scale commerce and transportation, real that is construction and real estate, and the fourth, of course, is tourism. Miami, the the tourism is in the in, my, in the DNA of Miami. Miami was actually created as a winter resort, so it continues to be a center for tourism worldwide, not Latin America. Latin America. For some reason, uh, Dubai, uh, which was built out of sand and uh, out of, of sand and excuse me, sorry. stop this. this. Um, the the <clears throat> the government of, of Dubai managed to create to turn it into a major tourist attraction. Among other things, by building these artificial islands in the in the Arabian Sea, the the, the an artificial island that reproduce uh, the image of Europe uh, in very very expensive uh, developments artificially created in the sea and and in the city itself and singapore being in a little isolated island where nobody would think of going as tourism has also worked out worked itself out into a major tourist attraction uh, and has developed quite a complex in the little islet called santosa island of, of the coast which have become fundamental in terms of tour to tourism, uh, 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 the tourism traffic in that part of the world. So here you have four pillars in which the city, the apparent, the apparent similarity of these four cities is trans, uh, it, it's, it's simply reflected the, that those skyline in the fact that their economic, uh, uh, their base, the basis for their economies are very similar. You know, I think there's, um, you know, you point, I guess, to the initial observation that you made in that first visit to Dubai, and then your desire to look beyond that initial kind of observation of the skylines to understand the inherent structures that gave rise to these three cities. And so in listening to you discuss them, um, I think you point, obviously, to the factors that have allowed Miami, Dubai, and Singapore to rise to global status, as opposed to some of the others that you mentioned in the book, you, you call another group of cities, the global hopefuls, um, which are cities that were poised to uh, arrive at global status, but, but let's say fell short. I think uh, we we're going to take a, a quick break. Um, but when we return, we're going to continue to speak with Alejandro Portes on his new book, Emerging Global Cities. And I, for one, uh, will want to hear more about what facilitated um, the rise of Miami, Singapore, and Dubai, um, but also how the forces that led to the growth of these cities may also put their long-term success in peril. Um, so I look forward to a continued conversation. Uh, please join us right after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. I am back with my guest, Alejandro Portes. And just before the break, we were talking about the similarities that have allowed um, Miami, Singapore, and Dubai um, to rise to global status. Um, perhaps we could continue that conversation and you could underline the the differing historical conditions that facilitated the emergence of these cities. Yes, actually, they, their histories are very, very, very different. And it's interesting how they converge in this. But I, I will start this by saying there are three preconditions for a city to become emerging global to, to acquire that study. The first is geography. You have to, that is, it had to be located in a, in a position that is strategic in terms of both uh, the region and in terms of, of, of commerce and so on. So it's not surprising that all three cities are by the sea. They are, they have ports and they have beaches. Uh, they are, they are not in t- interior cities. They are exter- external cities. They are by the sea in the Arabian Sea, uh, South Pacific. And, uh, uh, and of course, the Atlantic Ocean. <clears throat> but that's not enough because there are many cities in the coast, many coastal cities that are not, that have not played that role. The second is, is, is a, a predictable and a stable juridical and political regime. Right? By that, that is the, the fundamental thing is the, the hardcore guarantee of private property and its preservation. That it, in other words, that both corp- corporations, uh, banks, and individuals can invest their wealth with confidence that that there will be no confiscation, there will be no change, that the legal system is entirely predictable uh, and and protective of property of the private private property regime. Dubai and, and Singapore inherited the legal the the British common law system. Uh, in, incorporated in their constitutions and, and their 
their property, uh, their legal the regime is entirely copied from, uh, governed by the by the inheritance of uh, British common law, and of course, so is Miami as part of the as, as part of the American um, the, the American state and so on. But that's absolutely that's a, 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 that is security and predictability uh, of investments uh, in the future is very important. And the third condition is the presence of actors, be they individual or collective, that uh, that have that are decisively and uh, and firmly committed to push their cities to, to push their city to a significant an important role in the global economy. Uh, in the case of uh, <clears throat> in the case of Dubai, it was the family of the Emir Sheikh Maktoum, the first Sheikh Maktoum, Rashid, and and the present one, Mohammed, that were the the key figures, the leading figures in in single handed and and with a single commitment to promote their city and their and the and the and its, its, its visibility and importance in the world. In the case of Singapore, it was this little island that was just a collection of vision, fishing villages, when it gained independence from Malaysia uh, in the in the 60s, was taken over by the, the Popular Action Party, the PAP, and especially its leader, Lee Kuan Yew, a charismatic leader that actually was the the, the leader that is steer uh, the country uh, that had become suddenly independent, uh, that is to survive when nobody gave a hood for Singapore, when it uh, when it became independent, uh, Lee Kuan Yew and his party were able to carry out a series of very, very significant uh, policies that uh, converge in what it is, uh, in what it is today, uh, that is the key city in that in that area of the world, and in the case of Miami, there was not in the, no individual leader. The federal government had no plans for Miami except being a tourist resort, and and even the state of Florida did not pay any attention to single out Miami as as more significant or strategic than Tampa or Jacksonville. The key role was played by the class of Cuba exiled Cuban bankers. That is that class that came from Cuba in mass because of the revolution uh, immediately grasped the significance of Miami's geographical position in the hemisphere. Previous leaders of Miami have been talking about Miami being the capital of the hemisphere and so on, but it was just pure talk for the, the previous leadership of Miami, mostly white, transplanted white, whites from the north. The key role of Miami was to serve as a winter resort for New Yorkers and Bostonians and people escaping the, the harsh winters in the north, and that was it. It was a winter resort. It was it was this class, the, the class of exiled Cuban bankers that looked immediately south and saw the possibilities of Miami and its location in terms of becoming the center for business, financial transactions for the entire hemisphere. These these uh these bankers went to Latin America to persuade local bankers and to persuade people with money that Miami was the place to to come and invest their capital and their money rather than, than having to go to New York and talk to distant English-speaking bankers and officials. Now you could go to Miami. You could do business in Spanish without having any problem. And on top of that, you can have a vacation. Let's bring your family and buy, buy yourself a place here. 
So because of these activities and others that were that 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 could be mentioned that perhaps were less palatable just as a, as a drug trade in the 70s, but as a different chapter. Be it as it may, Miami became focal in the consciousness of Latin Americans, especially of the Latin American middle and upper classes, as, a, as the place to do business in America and the place to be. So that is that is why they can become, the three can become regional global cities specializing in the region of the world. Singapore in South is a place where people from India, China, Indonesia, and so on uh, come, uh, and it has become in the process the the gross national the, the per capita gross national product of Singapore is now about eighty thousand dollars a year. It's higher than many European countries and about ten times that of neighboring Malaysia, from which it gained its independence back back in the 60s. That the, the difference between Malaysia and Singapore in economic well-being is enormous. And uh, similarly, uh, that is the 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 Dubai has uh, has become uh, a, a rather wealthy place and a, and, a, and a place where people invest their money and capital and so on, as uh, as well as uh, as Miami. So these are the similarities. Although they came from very different routes, those three conditions: geography, uh, a, a predictable and stable judicial political regime, and the presence of charismatic leaders or classes that took it upon themselves. To spear, to lead their 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 city into this direction were the, were the three factors that um, Professor Armani and C as crucial in the emergence of these three places. You know, you um you speak about the the successes at the global scale, the similarities between the city, um, but there are also great challenges to the development of Dubai, Miami, and Singapore. One could argue that they include, you know, climate change. You know, Miami's built on a porous geology. Um, Dubai is carved out of the sand. Um, so questions of sustainability are certainly at the forefront of the making of the city and, and even the making of buildings. Um, but there's also questions of connectivity. Um, and then as of late, uh, the question of affordability uh, because in a way, uh, the pandemic, uh, if we if we just focus on Miami, seems to have accelerated Miami's development, certainly with a an influx of wealthy northerners and tech professionals that have made their way down to Miami for numerous reasons. And so I guess my question would be that do you how will these cities rise up to these challenges or, or do you feel that they might put the long-term success of the cities in peril? Thank you. Well, let, let's start with the question of affordability. I think that what is happening in Miami is similar to what happens in this other city, affordability, because that's, that's characteristic of all global cities. The most important global city in the world today continues to be New York, and it is unaffordable. That is the the, the key areas of Manhattan and so on are unaffordable for the for for the the common man or woman in the street. They are extraordinarily expensive. What is happening in Miami is predictable. is is a consequence of its rights to become a, a global city. You know, in other words, it, it is precisely because of that it is attracting. It's not only the real estate prices are going up, but it's attracting people from 
not only Florida, but all over the world that want to be here. So that creates a strong pressure. In the, and, what, and the result of that in all three cities is the, the, the partition, or if you like, the bifurcation of these cities uh, uh, into, uh, uh, into high wage, high, high income, uh, upper and upper middle classes, and the rest of the population. And that, that has, that is, that is, that works there, uh, is employed there, but is not able, it cannot afford to live there, uh, because of the rise of this. That kind of partition or bifurcation exists in all three cities. That is the labor force that make, that builds those buildings, the labor force that services those buildings, uh, and the labor force that works in hotels, restaurants, and so on. Uh, Servicing the, 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 that is the, the elite and, and upper middle classes do, cannot afford as the, as these cities develop to live in these areas, but must find re, residential, residence, uh, often far away from the centers or from the areas where they work. This in, increasing inequality, both social and spatial, is a characteristic of both New York and London, which are the all global cities, and now these emerging ones, and will continue. It will continue to happen, with with the result that uh, the working classes are peripheralized. It is a process of peripheralization to uh, to suburban areas far away, and that then it becomes the key problem in all three cities is how to transport. One of the questions is urban transport: how to transport people every day. From the places where they can afford to live to the places where they work, and uh, actually, uh, Dubai and Singapore have been much, much better at resolving that problem through public transport. A public transport, a tremendous subway system in in, in Dubai, and and great railway system in the island of Singapore. While Miami is still struggling with that, and you and one can see that in the in the enormous traffic congestion. In the major uh, highways in the city, because there is really no, no, no comprehensive public transport that addresses the needs. That is the the the, the, the that is the, the 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 highways that exist in Miami and so on were designed for the city as it was, the city that was a winter resort, the city that was relatively small and so on, and with this tremendous growth and this. And the, the fact that people cannot simply live in downtown Miami or nearby and have to move, move away to the, to the western and northern suburbs, it poses the problem of how to transfer that labor force, how to house it and how to transfer, which is uh, one of them, one of the major challenges that, uh, faces the city at present. But yeah, I if I. I'm sorry if I could interject there, actually, and we've learned, you know, through our study of cities that, um, you know, increased populations or the questions of transportation um, to serve an increased population are never solved by just increasing the widths of the streets or of the highways. Um, you know, it's been proven that they simply fill up. I mean, the key is that you have to offer alternative um, and diverse methods of transit, you know, obviously an augmented public transit system, which Miami um desperately needs, um, but also, you know, an ability to bike the city, walk the city. Um, so I, I think you point to a very important um, item that the city, at least certainly Miami, needs to be looking at in a serious way. Um, 
you you in your book, I guess you also so you know we've we've spoken about Miami, um, Dubai, and Singapore, and of course your your book is incredibly in depth, and I would encourage our listeners to go out and purchase the book um, to delve deeper into many of the themes that you explore, which include, you know, the ethnic and class structures of these cities, you know, which certainly, of course, referring to Miami, which is the city that we're both in, has played a critical role in the development of uh, key neighborhoods, uh, which are radically changing um, given the new um, development of the city. But you compared the three cities to uh, cities that you term global hopefuls, Right. And you and you point to three of these, New Orleans, Sao Paulo and Lagos. So just as a point of comparison, what was missing there that didn't, in your opinion, allow these cities to rise to uh, the global status that you described for Miami, Dubai and Singapore? Let me say that, try, try to do that uh, briefly. New Orleans is, the, is sociologically and, and uh, in terms of urban studies, the, the natural counterpart of Miami, the, the location, because New Orleans should have been the global city for the hemisphere. New Orleans was the third largest city in, in the United States in the middle of the 19th century, following New York and Chicago, and the conduit of all the traffic in the central part of the country through the Mississippi River into the Gulf and then into Europe and the Northeast. And it was a very important, very important city so much so that one of the priorities of the federal government at the beginning of the Civil War was to, to conquer New Orleans, to occupy it. But the city never managed to never managed to recuperate its its its, uh, le its level of prominence after the Civil War, and <clears throat> instead became entangled in a series of problems that had to do with uh, with uh, with with uh, its uh, racial composition and the the, the effort of the Look of the of the of the white population that had lost in the civil war to maintain at all costs its hegemony and keep the 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 population of former slaves out of political and economic power. The, that is the New Orleans. The history of New Orleans, New Orleans from there on is permeated by these racial encounters between white and black, and by the abs by the absence of vision of the of the local elites that were more concerned. With the position of New Orleans in the in the American uh, uh, political and legal system, than with the opportunities that that, posi that geographical position posed, if, if they were to look to the Caribbean and South America, so the city became very inward-looking. For the local elites, uh, the Caribbean or or Central America could be as far as Asia for what they con they they were concerned, because there was never a, a deliberate effort to cultivate. Economic ties like the like the ex like the Cuban bankers did uh, did in Miami with a very deliberate sort of uh, sort of view. So New Orleans gradually became uh, gradually lost lost uh, its position and gradually went went down in the in terms of uh, in terms of wealth to the point that today uh, the Growth domestic product of the growth domestic product of New Orleans is one fifth that of Miami, and its income per capita is at the bottom of the 50, lar 50 largest metropolitan area in the country. And that is, it has, in compared to my, in, the, the only industry that it has is tourism, that has been 
cleared by the by the its French heritage, but nothing more. It, it is not a, it's not an area for financial and commercial. Uh, it's not a center of financial, commercial transactions or real estate investment. And the like, and gradually you can see that both in the contrasting skylines and also in the economic profile and the level, the levels of income. Sao Paulo is uh, important because Sao Paulo can also be contrasted with Miami. Sao Paulo always wanted to be the regional capital since the 20th century that it was a, a vocation of the Paulista, Paulista elite to become to become the this city in Latin America to which European and Americans would come to invest, to center their banking and their corporate facilities to be the, the, the cultural center of, of the region. Why, why not? Sao Paulo is much bigger than Miami and it's actually the center of the economic and polit the economic and cultural center of Brazil. But the reason why that status, to put it briefly, did not translate into being a, a regional global city is because of juridical and political insecurity. Uh, that is, if the, that is the, jur the juridical regime and the political uh, evolution of the city did not did not uh, guarantee to prospective investors, to corporate, uh, uh, to their to corporations and bank, 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 banks looking to set up their regional headquarters for Latin America. They're not going to send them up in Sao Paulo because they, that is a, they know that that example, that is a political political upheavals can happen at any time, and there is no guarantee, there is not the certainty that that Miami can afford because of is political and juridical regime. So it's the question that is, it can become the center for the Brazilian economy and society, but not the cent but not the center for the region as a whole for that reason. And the Paulistas, of course, uh, 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 recognize that. And Lagos is a last that, that we, because Lagos once builds itself as the Dubai of Africa. It, it, that is the, the Nigerian elites are have been building enormous projects into the Atlantic, including the Eco-Atlantic, to attract foreign capital and to attract foreign investors uh, throughout Africa and Europe and so on. But again, it's a question of, of political and juridical certainty that uh, given given the, the, the ups and downs of African politics, the, uh, the possibility, the not the possibility of confiscatory policies or new forms of taxation or changes in the currency and so on. It's not a place that, uh, and I will, that is, we ask, we ask the following test. If you were the general manager of a, of a global corporation or the general or the president of a global bank or a multimillionaire, where would you invest? Where would you put your corporate headquarters, or where where would you invest your capital? In Sao Paulo? No. Yeah, yeah. In, I in no. That's it. That's there. There's so much more to discuss about this. We're at the last really two minutes of the show, and I want to make sure I ask you the the question that I've asked all my guests, and maybe you could answer it in about less than a minute. Um, but what is your favorite city, Alejandro, and why? That's difficult to, to say. I, I very much like New York and I very much like Miami. I think that because uh, it became a Havana, that is, a, I said, I said, we lost Havana. Uh, and actually, if 
if the, revo the revolution gave Miami a, 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 an unexpected gift. If, this, if these classes of bankers and business would have remained in Cuba, uh, Cuba would have leapt forward in, the, in Latin America to become one of the most economically prosperous and prominent countries in the region. It was already relatively wealthy at that time. It, it was lost. So now we have one of the attractions of Miami is its, is its multiculturality. This is a city where Spanish and English uh, Spanish is not subordinate, but Spanish and English are on the same level in terms of everyday life and in terms of commercial and financial life. And that, that cosmopolitanism that have grown in the city is reflect in the character of it becoming an emerging global city and perhaps is the reason why so many people want to come here. Yes, I would agree. It's what it's what makes our city a very, very special place to be. Thank you so much, Alejandro. For those of you who wish to hear more about this excellent book, he will be presenting this with his co-author, um, Ariel Armini, on March 3rd at Books and Books here in Miami. Um, and also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tune in next week, where I will be joined by Annalisa Mayboon. She will be discussing the future of automation and its ability to change the physical structure of our cities. Please join us on the On Cities podcast follow, or follow us on the On Cities podcast. And I look forward to connecting with you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 